almost forgot what the view looked like from here, <laughs> but I'm glad to be back. Amen. Okay, let's see here. Just opened up my Covenant Theology document, 184 pages. I was working last night, and uh, last couple hours of my study, I did something, pressed something. Where's my tech guy? Where's Robert and Chris? Pushed something, lost everything I worked on, and I couldn't recover it. I didn't know how to recover it. I tried everything. I watched YouTube videos. I... It's like I told Brother Landon, the Lord reminded me, you're not working just on theology, but your character too, so better hold it together. Better ask Trish how well I did. <laughs> Rather, don't ask her. Uh, yeah, frustrating, right? Um, so we are uh, going to resume our talk on covenant theology, and so I'm going to be using the board quite a bit. If you can see, I moved Toucan Sam over to the right a little bit. <laughs> And uh, we took a picture, actually, so that we can know how to reconstruct the Sunday school, uh, you know, props they have up here. But uh, uh, covenant theology, okay, guys, let's uh, try to reorient ourselves as far as what we're talking about uh, with covenant theology. And actually, you know what, before I do that, let me pray for us just to ask the Lord to help, help us and give us wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace. Your mercy today, Lord, we're not worthy to have your mercy and grace, and yet we thank you for the Lord Jesus who has so abundantly given us his grace. Uh, As the Apostle Paul says, he is the indescribable gift that you have given. And uh, Father, we thank you for his love and his compassion and patience towards us. We pray, Lord, that you'd guide us now, give us his wisdom. Uh, Lord, we pray for the mind of Christ as we think through all these important issues. Help us to just see the story of redemption, to fall in love, Lord, with the saga of redemption understanding uh, that in that redemptive history, uh, we find our own uh, history and our own future and our destiny and our own identity. And uh, Lord, help it not help this not to be just a, a way to tell fanciful stories, but to be reminded that these are not just stories that we're reading about, that this is actual biblical history and, and facts and events that transpired in your presence Lord, and through your power. And so, Father, we pray the mighty acts of God, Lord, would remind us that you are a mighty God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, You know, in thinking about uh, covenant theology, I thought, okay, well, how can I make it interesting? Okay, so I have an interesting question for you all. We're studying now uh, the Abrahamic covenant, right? So we're looking at Abraham and the covenant that was made with him uh, where do we go to begin our study of the Abrahamic covenant? Uh, anybody want to take a stab at it? Give, give you a, a clue. It's in Genesis. It's in Genesis. Genesis what? You're, you're, you know, that's why I don't look to you, uh, Jonathan, because you always, you always steal my thunder. And, uh, but did, <laughs> did somebody get taken by surprise there? Genesis 11? Why? Why Genesis 11? So let me ask you there, uh, smarty pants. <laughs> Why Genesis 11? Because like that chapter really spells out and sets a course of the beginning of the story of the Tower of Babel and the building up of uh, the people by language. And you were stuck between the focusing in on Abraham's life and the things from there. Yeah. 
uh, close. Uh, but this is what I'm going to suggest. Yes, sir. Correct. Yep. Well, so we're saying when you start uh, talking about the covenant of Abraham, not covenant theology, but just the covenant of Abraham, where do we begin with the covenant of Abraham? And we could go back to Noah, we could go back to the garden, right? But when we're looking at the immediate historical context. What are we talking about? You know, and so uh, this is what I wanted to, this is what I wanted to suggest to us. And I haven't quite seen this in anybody writing anybody. This is kind of a deduction that I've made uh, based on things that I've read and just my own study of Scripture, and, and uh, uh, um, uh, what I'm suggesting here is that when you look at uh, Genesis chapter 11, and, and if you're not there, you should go there uh, already, but uh, when you look at this, what, is, uh, what, is, what does Babel represent? I mean, we grow up, you know, reading the story of the Tower of Babel as children. You know, we can even do props and do a little tower and everything like that, right? And what's the main thing that we're getting from that? We're probably getting from that, that, you know, there, the Tower of Babel, that's when all the nations were divided. That's when God confused the languages, right? That's where God judged, you know, uh, humanity, kind of like the flood, right? Uh, and so what, what, what I'm saying is that Babel is actually, this is uh, what many have pointed out, but it is an anti-Christ crisis. Uh, in other words... Uh, we have kind of another repetition. When was the last Antichrist crisis in the Bible? And I think I have to even explain this a little bit. But uh, uh, in other words, when, when did, uh, if you're following the story of redemption, when did things get so bad that God had to do something drastic? Noah. That's right, the flood. And there, again, we would say that we entered into another crisis of redemption, right? That it says the whole world was given over, right? The, the thoughts of man were evil continually only, right? Or only continually evil. And, and it got so bad that, you know, what, what does God say? You know, God is sorry that he made man. He's going to wipe him off the face of the earth type of thing, okay? And so what we're saying is that when those redemptive ev- events happen, uh, and here in this case, judgment, that what we're seeing is an assault, what we're seeing is an assault on the kingdom of God. And we'll, we'll keep chasing this down. Yeah? Why say anti-Christ instead of anti-God? I would disagree. I would disagree because... Yeah. Yeah, so I would say, you know, obviously my commitment to covenant theology is that the whole scripture is Christocentric, right? And so I think Christ is the point of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 5. I think Christ is the point of it all. And so what is, what when humanity deviates from God's kingdom, what they're doing is taking a direct uh, line of assault against his Christocentrism, if you would, right? And, or his messianic interests in the world. That's really what's under attack here. You know, is the kingdom that God is building is the kingdom of who? Christ. Okay, we know that, right? And so when man deviates uh, and, 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 and opts for a different organization, if you would, it's always uh, at the pinnacle of it is an antichrist spirit, right? Uh, so, yeah, this is, I mean, we could have titled it other things, but I want to get right to the heart of it, you know? Yes, sir.
had a redemption in the Father and Son and Spirit. It was Christ throughout the entire scriptures. So I'm just saying, reiterating what you're saying with Antichrist being, we see that the whole plan of redemption is is basically Christ is at the center of it all. That's why you're using that word. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. And remember, guys, I introduced a, a uh, you know, introduced a, a, a phrase way back in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through, oh, I don't know, verse 8, or verse 8 is where God comes and judges uh, the covenant community that has, you know, sinned against him, right? But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we see the emergence of who, Russell? Good. <laughs> I only picked on you because I've heard you say the phrase before. But who emerges in Genesis chapter 3 is the anti-Lord, right? Satan, right? And the reason why we say anti-Lord is because what Satan tries to do there in the garden is not just trick a girl with an apple. (laughs) That's not what he's doing, right? Uh, He understands what is at stake in uh, the creation of man, and man having been created in God's image and the fact that what was potential for man had already been set forth for him in Genesis chapter 2, chapter two verses 15 to 17 in what we call the covenant of works, right? That had Adam obeyed God perfectly, so what was required of Adam was perfect and personal obedience to the covenant, right? But because he failed, right, he didn't realize the full potential of the covenant, which was what? What was the potential of the covenant of works? What's that? No, what was the potential? What, what, what was the reward that was being set out in front of him? Life, right? How do you know that, K-Dub? That's right. You had this fancy little tree. Don't laugh at my tree. Okay, you had this tree of life probably emanating. Just my, just my theory. You can't disprove it. <laughs> huh? It looks like a wonderful tree of life, brothers, what it looks like, okay? I won't accept anything, uh, anything less. The tree of life was uh, what theologians call the sacramental sign of the covenant of works. It stood there as a, as a remembrance to man that what was at stake was the, the ability to partake of life and to be, um, is, you know, so Adam, if he would have obeyed perfectly, what would have happened is that he would have been advanced Okay, there would have been an eschatological advancement beyond probation. So no longer in probation. Yeah, this is probation, right? Had he passed the test, he would have went from probation to uh, in a, a state of eternal life. See? Uh, and righteousness, right? Uh, uh, right? Righteousness or something like that. Uh, he, he would have been perfectly righteous, uh, he would have inherited the promises. He would have inherited the eschatological kingdom so that the present heavens and earth, you know, the present heavens and earth that God created, that's not a soccer ball, but the, the present heaven and earth that would have cre- was created would have eventually given way somehow, would have fractured whatever. Some people say, you know, it would have, it would have fallen apart. Somehow it would have, and then what would emerge from there is a new heavens and a new earth, something greater than what God had originally built. And, uh, and, and so, so God creates, you know, the heavens and the earth. And after he's done with every 
uh, create what they call a creative fiat, which means it's a sovereign God by fiat. You know, when a king speaks, speaks by fiat, what he's speaking by is his sovereign authority. He just speaks it and it happens. You see what I'm saying? And so with every creative fiat, what does he say? It is good. 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 You see, and then he takes his throne uh, upon the creation that he makes. His, you know, because the, the, the heavens and the earth are like a, like a sanctuary for God. Remember, we went through all that stuff, right? This, the, the, the heavens and the earth represent the, the, the temple of God. And so what does God do in the temple of God that he creates? He takes his Sabbath rest, which is a symbol of enthronement, right? So God reaches the Sabbath rest, and by reaching the Sabbath rest, God shows himself to be reigning supreme above his creation that he made. And so Adam, in a similar way, I think Adam was set forth an example by God that had he passed probation, he also would have entered rest, true Sabbath rest. Now, during probation, this is the time to what? It's the time to work. It's the time to cultivate, right? Uh, time to cultivate. It's time for what? Dominion. A dominion means it's time to spread the dominion of God throughout all the earth. But when this task is done, then you issue forth into eternal Sabbath rest. Is there any justification for this, guys? Any scriptures that come to mind? That man enters into some sort of eternal Sabbath rest? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. That's exactly what it says. There remains, therefore, a a rest for the people of God. What rest is that? It's eternal rest. See, this is what Adam was supposed to obtain, but he didn't. Sin messed everything up, okay? And so, at the fall, you find the very first Antichrist crisis led by the anti-Lord. Who's fueling the Tower of Babel in in Genesis chapter 11? Who's fueling that? right? Uh, It's Satan. Uh, Satan is fueling that. Now, um, let's turn there real quick and read the narrative, okay? Uh, Let's go uh, to Genesis 11, and please stop me and ask me if there's uh, any clarification on anything. There's no stupid questions, um, but just please don't hesitate to ask anything in regards to what I'm, I'm talking about here. These are big concepts, and I thought today what I would do is just kind of baptism by fire, put us right back into the conversation of biblical theology and covenant theology, okay? And so <clears throat> when you look at this, there are several features of Babel and you know, the Babelite kingdom that are set in antithesis to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, make no mistake about it, what's the Abrahamic covenant about? The kingdom of God, of course. And so, you know, what covenant theologians are saying is that what's covenant theology? Write this one down or remember it if you're, you know, like that. What is covenant theology? This is what covenant theology is. Covenant theology is the administration of the kingdom of God. Let's stop there for a second. Anybody questions? Mysteries? Anything? Anybody want to add to that? Anyone? Right. How that how that comes together? Well, why we say that? Yes, sir. That's a general way of saying. What? I don't understand what you just said. <laughs> it's the administration of God's kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of God is being granted to man through the covenants. You know, one very strong proof text that I can think of for this is Luke. 
Luke, uh, Luke chapter 22, I think it's verse uh, uh, 28 and 29. That's where Jesus tells his disciples upon the inauguration of a covenant, by the way, right? The covenant is what? The new covenant. What does he say there? I think it's Luke 22, 28. Uh, yeah, 20 and 29. Stay with me. That's right. That's right. And that's a poor translation, but I appreciate that. Who is that? Whose translation is that? I love the elect standard version sometimes. But the NASV is better there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the, the idea of God granting to Christ a kingdom, that's a powerful, provocative idea, right? And what do we think about that, and how do we understand that? <laughs> well, it's the kingdom, right? It's the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Adam did not attain to. That's the kingdom that Jesus inherited, because as the second Adam, he does what Adam did not do. And because he did what Adam did not do, he does get a kingdom, and in covenant theology, this goes back all the way to the eternal covenant of redemption, where the, through, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they come together, they agree that the Son will be rewarded with a kingdom upon perfect and personal obedience to the stipulations of the eternal covenant of redemption, which is what? How God is going to redeem a people for himself through Jesus Christ. Right. And so that's the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Now, when Jesus tells his disciples, I covenant to you a kingdom, of course, that happens through the new covenant. And so by virtue of our participation in the new covenant, we have been granted the kingdom of God with Christ. You see what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying is that, um, you know, theology is done backwards. Right. This is if you're dispensational, your hairs just stood up in the back of your neck. Because what I'm saying is that in order to understand the beginning, you need to look at the end. Uh, you, you need to kind of you know, do some time traveling in order to come back and understand the beginning, the origin. So eschatology determines protology. Right, guys? Yes, sir. Both, they, they kind of they kind of feed into each other, but what I'm saying is that in order to truly... Uh, unlock uh, what is at stake at the beginning, uh, it's good for us to go to the end. And of course, because we have the full revelation of God here, we have the whole book, we have the whole story. You know, some, some theologians, they want to do, uh, you know, theology like this, you know. Uh, I won't look ahead of the book, you know. I'm not going to look at the end of the story. It's kind of like watching a movie. You already know how it ends, but you're tricking yourself and saying, you know, it's not going to end that way. (laughs) Well, we know how it ends. Therefore, because we know how it ends, now we're able to interpret the movie correctly. Oh, that's why he did that. That's why she went there. That's why he said that. That's why that event happened. Now it makes perfect sense. You see what I'm saying? So uh, you're essentially saying that it is, I guess, that consistent, that it it gives you the grounds to put the rest of that together, that you can either look at it from the end to the beginning or from the beginning to the end? Yeah, yeah, there are two bookends, you know what I mean? And these two bookends have to be taken together. And so in order to understand the significance of the tree of life in Revelation, 
where's that at? It's a revelation. It's in uh, chapter 2, 7, chapter 22, verse 17, different places where it's mentioned. Of course, in order to understand the significance in revelation, it helps us to understand its role in Genesis you know, chapter two and three, and, and what what that means, right? And I mean, if you if you read Revelation and you says that and it says Jesus Christ says for the person that overcomes to him I will give him the right to partake of the tree of life, right? And actually, I think he even uses the word exousia, authority. I will grant him the authority to take of the tree of life. But if you don't know the backdrop of the tree of life, you're like, I mean, what do you need authority for? You know what I mean? That almost sounds like a legal term. You see what I'm saying? But that's exactly why Genesis, you know, the protology of Genesis is so necessary because there we see that man was barred from the tree of life. You see what I'm saying? That God actually, in a sense, put a, a, a sword of judgment uh, before the man so that he could not partake of the tree of life in any way whatsoever. And so all of humanity is barred from the tree of life. And so now it makes sense in Revelation why that's such a huge deal, <laughs> right? The curse has been reversed. Uh, that's the whole. That's the whole point of it. There, um, yes, sir. Just going back to your definition of covenant theology, yeah. can you elaborate when you're putting the word uh, administration? Why do you administration? Yeah, administration just means that this is the way that God is dispensing it to His people, right? Uh, he's just giving, and so when until you get to the new covenant, you know, you see, you see partial. I guess we could say partial administrations of the kingdom of God. You see sort of like the language of, uh, you know, prophecy, the language of, it's like a proleptic expectation of the kingdom of God. And sometimes it comes in very small forms, and then, and, and typically what you're looking at there is sort of on the typological level, right? You're, you're given sort of the kingdom, and a lot of that is typological. Uh, we understand that, right? I mean, just look at the kingdom with David, I mean, much of what David did was typical or typological of Christ. You see what I'm saying? So you have the development of the kingdom of God, and much of that is, again, along this typological field until it arrives at consummation. And then we see the kingdom of God in all of its realized fullness. You know, those kinds of things. So um, clear as mud, right? So uh, back to Genesis, and the reason why I want to draw the the parallel between uh, Genesis and what we could call the Babylite kingdom. Uh, here's another provocative term I'm going to use. Babylite covenant. I want to write the whole word. Uh, any justification for thinking of what happened at Babel as a covenant? I'm using this word a little bit loose. Okay, I'll write it. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm using I'm a little license there. Okay, a literary <laughs> sort of rhetorical license I'm using there. Yes, sir. Correct. They were in agreement, right, upon something, right? In a sense, it's like all the earth, the leaders, certainly there were leaders involved, right, where they made an agreement, they made a pact. They made a pact together that they would uh, do something for what purpose? What was the purpose that they did it for? What were they trying to do? That's right. So think about that. Okay, now it's starting to become a little bit clearer, right? What is Babel about? If I stop babbling, maybe we'll read the text, right? Okay, somebody, uh, who's got an NASB? Sorry, ESV people. I love you to death. Really do. (laughs) Keith, you want to read verses 1 all the way to verse 9? Let's concentrate here. Now the whole earth used the 
they fixed and done the story. And they used bricks and stones and they used cars to build it. And we shall come, let us therefore ourselves the city and the towers whose top is reached to heaven. Let us make ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. Now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and build the city for them, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad and over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. That's right. Uh, just to give you... Um, just to give you some pointers here. Let me know if you guys need any more of this. I kind of need this upper register up here. So just let me know if you need any of that back. I can put it back. Y'all are going to help me here to do some parallel. So on the one hand, you've got Babel. And then over here, you have Abraham, uh, right? And his covenant, uh, uh, really Genesis. What's the scriptures for the... Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter uh, uh, 17, right? And then you have repetitious, uh, repetitious things that go on in chapter 22 and other places. But these are really the critical texts for the Abrahamic covenant, 12. And we'll look at these in time. But when you contrast the two, what are some of the things that were contrasted? Chris, you mentioned one. Correct. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so right there, you see a first, a first antithesis, or at least one, in the pursuit of the name. Uh, this is a, a renown. Uh, how is man going to be glorified uh, through self-effort, right, or through sovereign condescension? How's that going to happen? Is man going to go from the cursed earth and ascend into the hill of the Lord? No way. David says, "No, you can't, unless you have clean hands and a pure heart." Said so it must be a work from heaven to earth, not a work from earth to heaven, right? Uh, you see, this is not a birthday cake, by the way. <clears throat> this is the Tower of Babel. Why did I construct it like this? How come it's not like this? You know, let's say there's a tower up here or something like that. How come it's not just like that? How come I paint it? What authority do I have to paint it like this? Well, we've discovered in an ancient, in ancient Near Eastern towers surrounding this time right here uh, uh, of the Tower of Babel that we've discovered ancient towers, and they're known as ziggurats. And these ziggurats are built like this. Uh, they're w- they go from wider to smaller uh, 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 platforms. And at the very top of the... P- uh, notice, you know, notice another feature on there? My brilliant drawing. Huh? they got stairs. That's right. Good. Yeah, that's right. There's a stairway to... Don't quote that song. <laughs> 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 so it is a stairway to heaven. 
That's the attempt, right? They want to ascend into the heavenly realms. You see what they're doing here in the Tower of Babel? They are trying to eschatologically advance themselves. Right? And God does not want that to happen. Because it can't happen. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a satanic facade. It's a satanic illusion, delusion of the mind. By the way, who did that first? Who did that first? I will ascend. Lucifer. I will be like the great, you know, the most high. I will ascend, you know, on high, right? It, he, it was all about self, right? So he lost the creator-creature distinction, and he tried to be like the creator. You see what I'm saying? That, 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 you guys, the Antichrist system that's coming upon this earth one day, I believe, I still think I believe that, and whatever shape or form that's going to ultimately take is rooted in that. It's rooted in a desire to be divine, it's rooted in a desire to be truly, truly autonomous, right? Free. Uh, what, what do the nations say in uh, Psalm chapter 2? Well, then you know. What, what do they say? Yeah, that's one of the parts. Let us tear their bonds asunder. Cast their cords from us. What is he saying? Free. We want to be free. You take the Lord's cords off of us. We don't want to be bound to the Lord. We don't want to be obligated to obey him. We want to do our own thing. It's the spirit of the age that Paul talks about in uh, Philippians or uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, right? It's the, it's the spirit of the air, the power of the prince you know, of the air. It's, that's what it is. It's a, sat- a satanic, it is an antichrist crisis that we're looking at here. It's a crisis because it's global, too. I mean, it's, everyone's gathered together for this antichrist effort to ascend to heaven on their own. You see? And, and, and uh, L- Pastor Lynn, engineer that he is, he detected a door up here, right? Here, you, yeah, we've done this before. Turn at uh, Genesis chapter 20, what is it, 28? Genesis chapter, yeah, Genesis chapter 28. You know what the story is. Right? There's a couple more. Uh, 28, beginning of verse 10. And then you're also going to look in a bit at John, chapter 1. I think it's verse, I don't know, we can start in verse 50. Um, but what do you, wh- wh- what's the story about? Verse 10. No, no, Jacob's dream. What does he see, you guys, in this dream? You know, he sees a ladder, and he sees that the angels are ascending and descending, correct? Uh, Let's look at the specificity here. Yeah, look at the specificity of verse 12. A ladder was set on the earth. See what I'm saying? So it was set on the earth. It didn't come up from the earth. (laughs) It came down from heaven to the earth, okay? Uh, And then, again, the angels are ascending and descending there uh, on that, right? Um, a, a couple things that are important here. If you jump down towards the narrative here and, and what happens. Oh, man, there's so much here. Look at verse 14. Your, sense, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, east, north, south. Oh, that's huge there. And in you and in all your descendants shall the families of the earth be blessed. Where did that language come from right there? Verse, verse 14. 
where does that language come from? Abraham. It comes from Abrahamic covenant, right? So you have you have God constantly reiterating the the promises of and the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant to his posterity, Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob in particular. And he's behold, I'm with you. I'll keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, this is the crucial part. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Um, uh, that's really remarkable. He said, he, said uh, he was afraid and said, yeah, you know, theophany in the Bible usually results in epiphany, right? A fear, right? Some epiphanic sort of uh, people are covered in fear when something like this happens. And uh, I think we lose the sight of that. I don't know what's in your mind when you're thinking of this, you know, a guy laying in his bed with a cold sweat or something like that. I think he's ghost white. He's covered in fear based on what he saw, okay? And he says uh, uh, this, and what does he call this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The reason why I put a gate up here is because the ziggurat structures that we've unearthed, I've even looked at, I've even looked at, uh, uh, what do you call it? I've even looked at you know ancient you know, ruins that they found with ziggurats in them, right? And with many of them having the inscription here, right? It says "Gate of Heaven." Uh, that's that's what a lot of them say. And what does he say here? He says it is the. What does he say? It is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You see what I'm saying? Now somebody read uh, John chapter one. Beginning in verse, I think verse 50. I think it's actually verse 52, but maybe for context. Yes, sir? Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? Keep going. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Correct. Jesus identifies himself there, right? That's Christ. He is the stairway. He is the ladder to heaven. What man attempted to do, only Christ is able to give us. You see what I'm saying? This is why, going back, if you would, just in your, in your mind, I'm still, it's, my writing's still up here, the Antichrist crisis that I was talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's the way. He's the way. He's the way. And, um, uh, yes, sir? Thinking of these as being the same language, yep. as well as the sun, it makes me think of Proverbs 30 and verse 4. Is that all thing? I'm not sure. What is Proverbs 34? It says, who has ascended into heaven and descended? Mm. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Mm. Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Who is what is his name hmm. or his son's name? Surely you know. Yeah, that's right. It's beautiful. That's the that's the um, that's the uh, messianic right. character of the wisdom literature. You know, often the Messiah is typified in as wisdom and in the wisdom literature. But so yeah, would you say that's a connection? Of I think so. That's a good one. Yeah, I have to look at it a little closer, but just just based on that, I think that's good. Uh, guys, go back to Genesis eleven. Let's keep going with our little our little uh, table that we have going on up here, okay? So there's a name. We know that, okay? Um, man, look at verse 4. 
Look at what these people say. They said, what? Come, let us build ourselves a city. Wow. So Babel has a city, and Abraham is also promised, if you would, a city. Uh, But what city is that? Huh? What city is Abraham promised? Zion. That's right. Zion. City of God. Uh, Quickly, Genesis 13. Twice in the um, in the account, twice in the account of Abraham, God tells Abraham, remember Julio, to look. He's talking to Julio about this. Twice he tells him to look. And here, the first one, he says, verse four, uh, Genesis thirteen fourteen. The Lord said to Abraham, uh, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Where is he supposed to look? North, south, east, west. For all the land which you see, I'll give it to you and your descendants forever. Uh, Where else is he supposed to look? The other one is not exactly the same as this, but the other one, if you're curious, is Genesis 15. When God tells Abraham uh, to look, verse 5, to look uh, toward the heavens and to count the stars. Correct? Okay, now, somebody turn to Hebrews chapter uh, 11. Right? Hebrews chapter 11, beginning, I think it's in verse 13. Start reading there. Don't stop till I tell you to stop. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 13. Who's, who's got it? Go ahead, Jonathan. Keep. No, that's not it. I'm sorry. Go back up to verse 10, I think it is. No, no, no. Uh, now I'm losing my mind. I think it's 8 or 9, yeah. Yeah, go to 8. Yeah. Oh, stop right there. So there you go. So what was Abraham ultimately looking at? He was looking at the city of God. So when God, I believe, when God told Abraham to go into Canaan and to look around north, where am I at? South. What's that? West? East? (laughs) Right? He tells him to look in every direction. This omnidirectional blessing that God was giving to Abraham is actually prophetic. Of what? Of the new Jerusalem, of the city of God, of Zion, of the new heavens and the new earth. If you look in Revelation 21 and 22, guess what, guys? The city of God extends in every direction. It is a cosmic city. It covers everything. And so I think what what Abraham was doing, in a sense, is he was symbolizing not Canaan, you know, you guys are going to go to Israel with us, some of you. 
and we're going to see the city. And we're going to look around and we're going to look at Jerusalem. And just remember, when Abraham was there, he looked around because that was just a model. When you go to Jerusalem, they have a perfect first century model replica of the ancient first century Jerusalem. It's amazing. It's like the size of this room. And the, the tour guide will show you. He's got a laser, and he's showing you a lot of times. And he's showing you all the different things. Perfect. And then guess what we're standing in? <laughs> we're standing in the actual physical Jerusalem, looking at a replica of Jerusalem. It's like that. And so when, when uh, Abraham was standing in the, in the, in the physical uh, Jerusalem on this planet, it was just typical of the heavenly Jerusalem that God would give him. And so... Um, you know, Babel attempts to have a city. God promises Abraham a city. Is there any other parallels, any other antithesis that we can uh, derive? Uh, again, the city of Babel is from earth. Even says in the text, you go back to Genesis 11, even says, let us, let us uh, make bricks for ourselves and burn them thoroughly. They're going to use the, the earth that God cursed. Remember that theme, that motif is picked up again in the Noahic covenant when um, the father of uh, uh, Noah, Lamech, right? He says, there's someone is coming who will deliver us from the toil of our hands from the earth, which the Lord cursed. And so man is using a cursed ground. <laughs> in an attempt to reach celestial ground. <laughs> it doesn't work. God instead promises to Abraham to go from heaven to earth, in a sense. Right? Okay. What else? The name? Um, how about this? What is the very first thing that's going on there in uh, the tower with the Tower of Babel? What's the first? What is the first uh, movement there, if you would? Right. What is uh, what is Abraham promised? Descendants that will be multiplied. Right. So he is promised a great fecundity. Right. Many, 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 many descendants. What is Babel? What's the Babelite community doing? They are gathering, <laughs> right? Right. So we can say gathering nations, if you would. Fecundity of nations. I guess we can say that too, right? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Babel is saying, come to us. Join with us and you will be blessed. You will reach even the gate of heaven. Right. So. Um, anything else, any other motifs? One is a self-government. There's just stuff I put down self-government. And the other one is a uh, what did I put down? God's government. <laughs> God's government. Right. Even. Very important. 
Yeah, that's right. It's showing us how in the new covenant through the spirit as God is building his end time temple through the church. That is how all the nations will come streaming into Jerusalem. That's what's going on in Pentecost. Uh, And again, antithesis, one language, right? Yeah, one language. What is Abraham promised? Many tongues, right? The antithesis here is very clear. Um, uh, Also, uh, in Babel, this is a kingdom of dominion. They're trying to rule over all the earth, you guys. They're ruling everybody. And the tower, this is the epicenter of Babel. The, the tower is the epicenter of that dominion. <laughs> A visible demonstration of its, watch this now, of its technology. And how everyone has to belong to the building of that technological edifice. <laughs> Lynn's like thinking all these things. Engineers are weird. Careful with Pastor Lynn. <laughs> Sure. So as much as you were when you came together, what is Abrahamic covenant should be? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's actually a good point. You know what I would call that? I would say that it's a man centered, right? Man centered covenant versus a divine or God centered covenant, right? Something like that. Centered. Um, You can go on and on. I mean, I I think the. and then ultimately, guys, Babel is Christless. This is Christ-centered. So now do you see the need for Abraham? <laughs> right? Because after Babel, okay, so judgment comes and God just destroys all of this. Okay, but then what? It still doesn't answer the redemptive question. Now what? Now what is God? So it's just going to end in judgment? No, it doesn't end in judgment. So judgment is not the ultimate, you know, that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is promise, right? The ultimate goal is that God's promise advances. By the way, as we're thinking of this, look at Acts. Okay, so I like to have fun with uh, covenant theology and biblical theology. And I, you know, I'm kind of like a kid in a candy store. I've you know, I sort of enter into a virtual reality world of biblical theology, and I kind of find myself, it's kind of like a, you know, like a, I don't know, like, like in the sense, you know, try to imagine what it's like, and just get caught up in the drama, the saga of it all. And one verse that has always, it's a small little thing, but I want you to read the Old Testament with a drumbeat. In other words, when you're reading the Old Testament, there should be an, there should be an intensification. Boom. You know, it's coming. Something is coming. Right? And that's how we should read the Old Testament. As we're going through the story of Noah, the story of Abraham, the story of, you know, uh, uh, Moses and David and the prophets, right? There should be an intensification in our heart. We should be swelling up with expectation, right? And just to show you that, what's the principle driving all of that? Look at Acts chapter 17, verse, uh, Acts 7, verse 17. Sorry, 
What is Acts chapter 7? I've told you guys this before. Acts chapter 7 is a masterful biblical theology by an author of scripture or a person in the Bible, right? A biblical person, Stephen. And guess what? I've looked everywhere, high and low. I've looked at theological journals. I've gone into uh, libraries and seminaries. I've gone looking everywhere for someone who has done a lengthy exposition and a, and a serious like treatment of Stephen's biblical theology. As much biblical theology as, you know, uh, you know, it's real trendy right now and everyone's writing books on it, right, and all of that. No one has taken a real hard look at Stephen's biblical theology. I think it's kind of surprising. I looked at Beale, zip, nothing, this little sentence. It's like, what? Everything's right here. Anyway, just my little. Verse 17 says, but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham. See, there is a sovereign controlling factor in the Old Testament. There is a principle at work in the Old Testament. What is it? The promise. And the promise, I mean, you could theoretically go back to Genesis chapter 15, uh, 315 and understand that the, 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 the very kernel of that promise is mentioned there in Genesis 315 on the covenant of grace, right? Where there it is promised, there it is set forth in the most primitive, bare essence, right? In the most simplest terms, Right, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are at odds, and he's going to win. Right? Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm thinking about more work needs to be done on that. You know, because the promise is there, and if you look at that passage, which I mean, look what time it is, and it's terrible. But in John and Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, I think you have multiple seeds going on there. You know why I say that? Because when it says the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, who's the seed of the serpent? Who's the seed of the serpent? It's not Satan. Satan is the serpent. What or who is his seed? Ah, let's th- let's leave it at that. <laughs> leave me coming back for more next. <laughs> Don't leave me there. <laughs> the seed of the serpent is the unbelieving world that rejects Christ and is hostile to Christ. We're going to preach about that in a minute, but that tells me that the seed of the woman there at the very beginning is the seed comprised of the saints who are in hostile relationships with the, the world, um, two different communities, and then it moves to an individual understanding of, of the serpent versus uh, Christ, the Messianic seed. Amen? All right. Let's go, huh?